I am not someone who is suffering or living with. I'm a person living in spite of my bipolarity, in spite of my struggles, in spite of my suicidal ideations. I am living. And we, particularly in the black community, need to give our people credit for that because they've been doing it. Welcome to Wellness in Color on the Mental Health in Minnesota podcast produced by NAMI Minnesota, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Wellness in Color is a podcast series that explores perspectives on mental health to reshape the cultural language of mental illness. Visit NAMI Minnesota online at namimn.org. Subscribe to the podcast and listen on the NAMI Minnesota website or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here is your host, NAMI Minnesota staff member, Caroline Ludy. I'd like to welcome you to our guest, Pastor John Anthony Burchell. Thank you, Caroline. And as well to our guest host, Cynthia Fashaw. Hello. A native of Bermuda, but formed and shaped in Barbados, a former newspaper reporter, writer, EMT, currently an ordained Baptist minister and hospice chaplain, 49-year-old Pastor John Anthony Burchell talks to Wellness and Color about his understanding of hope and their connection to his own mental health after surviving two suicide attempts. These efforts were supported by the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences of the National Institutes of Health, award number UL1TR002494. The content is solely the responsibility of the authors. It does not necessarily represent the official views of the National Institutes of Health. So welcome, Pastor Anthony Burchell. Thank you, Caroline. Yeah. So just to kind of get this started, can you just tell us a little bit more about yourself? I was born in Bermuda to uh, two lovely parents, Anita and Bill. I have two uh, older sister and a younger brother. I was educated in Bermuda and Barbados and Canada and England, as well as here in the United States. Uh, I would say that my shaping took place in Barbados at my grandmother's knee. It is the reason why I am the minister that I am It is the reason why I pray as I do. It is the reason why I see myself as I see myself as a pastor in the world. Mm -hmm. And so you said that your your grandmother was a a huge influence on your life. What do you mean? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? My grandmother was a steadfast and solid Christian. My grandmother awoke every day at 4 a.m., and I was then about seven. And at first, I I couldn't understand what she was doing, but then I would hear her sing, sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer. And then she would go into praying. And my grandmother had eight children, and each of those eight children had at least six children. So my grandmother would start at my uncle Sonny, her eldest, pray for him, pray for his wife, pray for each of his children by name. And she wouldn't just be saying, bless so-and-so, bless so-and-so. She would say specific things about each one of them. My mother was number seven, so she went down all the boys, and then my mother, Anita. She'd pray for my mother, and then she'd pray for my father, Bill. She'd pray for my sister, Paula, and then I would perk up to hear what my grandmother 
was telling God about me. And as a seven-year-old, I didn't really understand that, but all I do know is that I felt really special, that uh, my grandmother could talk so easily to the creator of the universe who was listening to her. And in the center of that conversation was me. I have never let that go. I have understood myself that way. And I think that I try to embody that um, in everything that I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then in you know, your relationship now with your grandmother and now your current role as a ordained Baptist minister and also a hospice chaplain, how has this you know, correlation managed your own mental health? Well, if you can imagine feeling so centered and so grounded and so wrapped in pillows and so loved and then find yourself unloved, unable to manage your life. The things that grounded you, my sense of being intelligent, being smart, being very good in school, and then I arrived at journalism school to discover that there were people who were much smarter than I was. To then discover that there was such a thing as writer's block, and I'm in journalism school. My values, my grounding, my sense of security did not marry up with this new reality. How did your life and how did your own philosophies of your mental health come into play as well, too? Yeah. Well, I, I took a turn. I did get through journalism school. I did find my voice and I was able to write and do everything and I did really well. Uh, in the end, and, and that was fine. Uh, I went back to Bermuda, got a job, I was working as a journalist, everything was fine. Working as EMT, everything was fine. Uh, working as a speechwriter for the premiere, everything was fine. Um, but I, I basically turned my back on my religious life after that incident on the bridge. I felt that if I was that important to God, God would have done something to to prevent me from harming myself. If I was the apple of God's eye, as my grandmother said, and if I was that important to be spoken about to God by her, then why is it that this precious child was not helped in the moment of greatest need? Why was this precious child abandoned? So I had a very difficult time between what my mother, sorry, my grandmother taught me about faith and what my actual lived experience of faith was in depression. So I basically walked away from my faith. I became rigorously humanistic and atheistic, and my life went along. 
along that front. And then my life crashed. I worked hard, I put in the hours, I took care of the children, I did everything, everything, and then the divorce came. And the reason for the divorce was I wasn't in the house enough, I wasn't present enough, and for me it was strange because I said, well, this house, this swimming pool, didn't just happen, you know. I took care of my children, I did everything they needed, I read them their stories, everything. But I worked basically night and day. EMT at night, speechwriter or a journalist and then speechwriter by day. Um, in order to pay the bills. At the end of the day, when I stood before the judge who took three minutes to take away the house and everything from me, because my wife, then wife, uh, cleaned me out. Uh, I became homeless. I uh, was just a person who paid child support. That was it. But I had nowhere to live. Um, I discovered that, <laughs> that all of that work and um, living the, what we would say the Bermuda dream, that conventional understanding of life failed me as well. So here I was. What I felt or understood God to be through my grandmother's eyes had failed me. I came to this part, worked hard, house, swimming pool, two kids, great job, all of that, community-minded, community-spirited through my Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. Still ended me up in court, and the judge only took three minutes to take away what had taken me years to build up. How do you think I felt at that point? So I was in a situation where I just thought there was nowhere else to turn. I don't think anything else was possible. I didn't think I had any options. I thought that everything was uh, done for me. And at that time, I was okay as long as I, was, I got to see my children. I got to read them their bedtime stories. And, uh, and so every day I would say, I'm going to work. Everything's going to be fine because I'm going to go see my daughters and read them the bedtime stories. And as long as that, that happened, then I was, I was fine. So for me, I then started to rethink my understanding of God but now, as a 30-year-old divorced man with kids who's been through the ringer that fathers go through trying to see their kids in a divorce situation. And then I got to a stage where I started to re-examine my relationship with God through the prism of all of that, from my university challenges, right through my divorce, through situations with my children. And I came to the realization that my grandmother wasn't wrong. I came to the realization that as a child, and it couldn't have been any other way, I depended, I depended on her as the carrier of my faith. I didn't. I didn't, have that, I didn't have to do that. My grandmother did it for me. And so what I then learned is that 
the God I was coming to understand wasn't the God of the Moses story who intervened, but was the God that says, no matter what happens, you are beloved. And if you understand yourself to be beloved, John Anthony, how are you now going to relate to your ex-wife? If you understand yourself to be beloved, how are you going to relate to your children? What can make you fall out of love with your children? Nothing. Well, there's nothing that can happen that can make you fall out of love with me. And that was my journey back to, uh, I uh, gave up my jobs, I quit, I moved to the States, I met Howard to figure out for myself <laughs> on an intellectual level, because sort of that science me uh, method in my head, uh, what, my, what my understanding of myself could be now. Then mental illness hit a second time uh, when I um, was separated from my hospice job. I was evicted, homeless, bankruptcy, housing insecurity, unemployment, all at once. All came crashing down together, and it was just too much. It was just too much for me. So I just interact. At this point in time now, mm -hmm. you said now you're at Howard. Um, after Howard. After Howard. So yes. uh, what point, how old are you now in this? Uh, I went to Howard. I was 30. Three. Okay, so now you're just in your early 30s. Early 30s now. Yeah. Early 30s now. I graduated from Howard. I went into chaplaincy at Washington Hospital Center and Georgetown. I then went into hospice chaplaincy after that. Loved it. Was separated from that job after four years. And then, because I wasn't working, eviction. With eviction came bills. With bills came IRS. With IRS, it on, on, it just built up and built up and built up. And so I, in that vortex, went to the medical profession, the mental health professionals, who then misdiagnosed me. As a consequence of their misdiagnosis, I went into full-fledged mania. I mean full-fledged. I, I got caught speeding at 72 miles per hour by a cop. Didn't even know that I was, you know, I was just beyond myself. I thought I was Jesus. I thought I was invincible. I thought nothing could harm me. And how long in between your... Mania. Wrongful diagnosis, and then now your correct diagnosis of living with bipolar. The wrongful diagnosis was at the, towards the end of 2014. Mm -hmm. And then I had the manic episode. I was treated for that. I came back home. I had uh, my selections of drugs. But I didn't like how I felt. Mania, I felt everything. Every pore in my body was feeling. These drugs made me numb. I was hollow. 
I couldn't feel my feelings. I was in situations where I should have been upset, but I had to intellectualize it because I wasn't feeling it in my body. And then I came to May of 2015, and May 14th, what, 2015 would have been 20 years of my father's suicide. And so now after that point, mm -hmm. where you are right now, because right. you say, of course, within your own family, you lost both your father and your, you said your grandfather. Grandfather, yeah. suicide. Mm -hmm. um, and your sister, brother, and now, of course, yourself have made mm -hmm. suicide attempts. Yes. Um, and in your own words, you say that for my tribe, suicide is the family business. Yep. But then how has this now come back into where you are right now? Mm -hmm. Because you are a hospice chaplain. Um, yeah. You're in, you have said, the throes of life. Mm -hmm. So how have you reached the stage of your 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 mental health. What you do is you live day by day. And you celebrate that today, I don't feel like killing myself. So I won. Is your language then the celebration? Not, celebration. Not recovery. Not recovery. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I know that tomorrow could be different. And I respect that. And the more that I respect that, the more I would be able to take care, advocate for myself, than if I thought I'm moving in an inexorable line towards some destination called wellness. I don't think so. So then in your role, current mm -hmm. role as a Baptist minister, but yes. also hospice chaplain, right. how does your, your racial and cultural identity effuse with this meaning of the word celebration? Because you said before that um, you don't use the word privilege or recovery because it's not of the character that people have defined for you. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, when you are, uh, let's go right back to it. When you are a descendant of slaves, words like hope and we'll get over by and by, right, are basically words that say that your status quo right now as a slave are going to continue. And in my work as a hospice chaplain, people are dying. There's no sugarcoating it. The doctors have done all that they think they can do. Science has done all that it thinks it can do. But here we are, as two human beings, both broken. But for some reason, your circumstance and my circumstance can marry up. And we can even experience moments of clarity, a smile a chuckle, the enjoyment of a hymn. In this desert, that is joy. And when that happens in my work, it is celebration. And when I do those funerals, that's what I talk about. It's not about how well or how, but how a person in the most difficult circumstances still experienced joy. Even though hope is not in, in your vocabulary, you know, we don't use it in your language. I, I just want to interject and not say I'm playing devil's advocate, no, but no, 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 for, no. for a lot of individuals, and yes. I can generalize, hope is, you know, their yes. own pathway yes. to their own wellness. Yes. Um, so yes. 
I don't want to downplay that for mm-hmm. other individuals too. Oh, but yeah. you're just saying that for yourself, mm-hmm. that is in, not in your language. Right. So when you talk to me about hope and recovery and wellness from the same people who give me drugs that have now given me side effects, one of which is suicide ideation, I find it very difficult to accept their methodology as help for me, that my own body has suffered as a consequence of their drugs. So then from your own experiences, what has helped you? Advocating for myself. Mm -hmm. Once I got strong enough, once I got out of the haze of the drugs, not being truthful all the time to my therapist or my psychiatrist, holding things back. And then when I got enough clarity, being able to say, no, I am not going to take that. I am not going to take that. Do what you will. You've done it to me before. You know, you've got the power to override my civil rights. Go ahead, call yourself a doctor. So for me, it became advocacy. So what do you do for self-care? What are the three most significant things that you do that keep you going, that keep you in your level of faith, that keep you being able to wake up every day and celebrate being alive? I care for others at my job. I work out. I read my Bible. I pray, I meditate, I talk to anyone who would listen about my journey, particularly people, particularly teenagers, who experience this confusion between what their parents are telling them is going to be good for them and what their actual experience is, but they can't tell the truth about it because the parents know, the doctors know, everybody knows but them. And then I can say to them, well, actually, when you become an adult, it doesn't get that much better. And what you can do, how you must do, is you must continue to believe right in there that you are you. These drugs are not you. What the doctor diagnoses you as, it's not you. So my self-care is the meditation, and when we say meditation, it's going to the place where you no longer cling. You no longer desire anything. You're not pursuing a destination. You're not seeking an answer. You're not hearing what's going on outside. That's the meditative space. You're not going asking for anything. Prayer, prayer is the leaning in, the leaning towards, the opening up of the self. It is not to ask for anything because the God I serve already knows. So you're not telling my God anything that my God has already know, and I'm not going to ask for anything that my God would already give to me. So if I don't have it, I don't have it. It's not up to me to give a shopping list to my God. So for me to be open, it is for me to listen, because if I'm speaking, 
I can't hear the voice of God. Also reading my Bible and enjoying that. Also reading trashy books. Also watching, I know, telenovelas. Colombian, Venezuelan, Mexican. <laughs> I am absolutely addicted. Oh yeah, that's, that's me, that's me, that's me, the uh, telenovelas, uh, I can't get enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that's, that's my self-care, in a nutshell. Some religious and spiritual, and then there's, you know. <laughs> so, yes. bringing it back, for you to come on and Wellness and Color talk about it so openly and honestly as an individual of the black community. Yes. Can you, in your own words, now too, also as a Baptist minister, yes. talk about the relationship between religion and mental health yes. for the black community? Because I would say as a, as a black woman, too, mm-hmm. often it's not talked about. No, and, no, you know, no. And, and it, it wouldn't be talked about no, because no. if it was, we would have to face some unsettling truth. All right. The biblical understanding of mental illness is that it is a curse from God for failing to follow God's laws. Those 613 laws of the Hebrew Bible known as the holiness code. You don't obey them, you get punished. And the scripture is Deuteronomy 28. It is God that punishes us. And that still exists today. So you see somebody who's mentally unwell, it's their fault. That's biblical. That's the biblical answer. So if you see that guy over there rooting around in the trash, muttering to himself, that's his fault. Pastors won't touch that. New Testament, Jesus, he goes off and he heals in the temple. The Pharisees are seeking to kill him. There's a crowd following him, so the Pharisees can't touch him yet. He goes into this home. His brothers and his mother hear that he's there. And to sidestep between the Pharisees and their son, his mother says, oh, he's out of his mind. And some translations, he's crazy. Meaning that what he, what he did in the temple, ah, he's, he's, he's crazy. So... So Jesus, so stigma goes back as far as the first century, right? So that the biblical understanding is it's a punishment from God. Now, in the black community where our people suffer so seriously, it is the church that is the, our salvation. The church is our therapy. The church is everything. What the pastor says is everything, is gospel, is Bible. The unfortunate thing for the Christian tradition is that we have what's called a redemptive story. Things go bad, they 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 go bad, bad, and then they get better and bliss. Well, we do have a number of African-American churches that have a a mental health ministry. Um, and that, uh, you know, I can think off the top of my head, um, there's a church in North Minneapolis called the Kwanzaa Church. Mm-hmm. It's run by a, a husband and wife, mm-hmm. um, African-American husband and wife. Um, 
who are both pastors, right. um, and they have a really significant mental health ministry mm-hmm. there. They, they talk about mental illness. They they house the homeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, clo- they provide clothing and food, mm-hmm. you know. And I see some of that beginning to change. Right. Um, and and I see where we're beginning to develop an understanding that you can't understand the word if your mental health is is in need. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm so I'm seeing some of those changes. Mm-hmm. I think they've been really slow in coming, and I think it's a different path for African Americans than it is oh, yes. for non-African Americans. Oh, yeah. um, and I think even stigma is different mm-hmm. for us. Yes, um, the source of the stigma and how it's manifest. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to use the word hope because it's coming from a family that's steeped. In mental illness. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I am too. I'm sorry to hear that. But, you know, every year somebody mm-hmm. in my family takes a step, uh, you know, towards their wellness. And every year I see somebody that we were worried wasn't going to make it begin mm-hmm. to make it. I'm glad. And so I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think we, we're on the road. Mm. Um. I don't think enough of us are on the road. Mm-hmm. And some people who are on the road are just standing there, not moving. <laughs> um, it's unfortunate, but it's true. But I, hear, but I hear your words and I understand what you're saying because the language of illness and wellness and how we move away from illness, I know you don't like the word recovery, but how mm-hmm. we move away from that into whatever direction we go needs to be reflective mm-hmm. of our process as well. I like what you're saying. The reason why I am, now as I said, as the, my bio reads, I was an EMT. All right. So I have the experience and also a nursing orderly in the hospital. So I have the experience of taking someone in to surgery with a broken leg. They go into surgery for that broken leg. The broken leg is repaired, is set. And then I come back and get them and I take them to the recovery room. That leg will be set. They go into the recovery room. They have two months or three months of therapy for their leg. And then they're walking. I am bipolar. I will never recover from being bipolar. You I live will be bipolar. with bipolar. No, 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 no. I am bipolar. Do you can take, let's, let's go. So if you took the leg, a veteran loses both of his legs. He is still a veteran. Veteran loses arm. Brain. Can my brain be transplanted and me not be me? You can replace my arm, my leg, I'm still John Anthony. You can replace my kidney or both, put me on dialysis, I'm still John Anthony. I can have heart problems, I'm still John Anthony. Brain. Take my brain away, am I still John Anthony? Right, so people say, right, when people say you're just a person with bipolar, I say no, no, my brain is sick. And my brain is also me. 
Just as my arms are me, just as my heart is me, my brain is also me. The very thing that makes me have a sense of who I am is the very thing that is ill. That is me. And I don't care if people try to sugarcoat it and say, no, you are a person with. I say, no, 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 no. You don't live with what I live. You don't get to define. I've been on enough definitions of people. Major depressive. That didn't work out so well for me. All right? So I am not someone who is suffering or living with. I'm a person living in spite All right. of my bipolarity in spite of my struggles, in spite of my su suicidal ideations, I am living. And we, particularly in the black community, need to give our people credit for that. Mm. Because they've been doing it, right? And so I think the credit needs to go where the credit is due. And that is to say that people who are living with who are these mental illnesses or whatever people want to define us as, are living with difficult circumstances, but we're living through those difficult circumstances without denying them, we're living anyway. That's how I see it. That's just me. Others may see it another way, but that's just me as someone, you know, it's pregnant for me in my life. Um, it's not an intellectual thing. It's, it's my life. So... With your own experiences, now that you're at your current identity, yeah, how can services be improved then for an individual of color? And again, I know it's individual experiences. No, it's more. no, 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 it's more. But it's more. You've, you've, you've now, you've now, you've now hit the gold standard. All right. The most horrible thing about the encounter with the mental health service as a person of color is their abject, abject failure to consider your humanity. To, they totally dismiss you, your sense of self. So if I come into the emergency room uh, and I have done some kind of self-harm, whatever you want to call it, right? And the doctor comes in and, or the psychiatrist comes in and starts to talk to me about why I'm doing it. My answer is, you are presuming that there is a self to harm. There's no self here. That's what's lost. When your brain isn't working right, you don't have a sense of self. That's why you act out in the way out. But that's why you do some of the things that you do. Because this self, the only way you can feel it sometimes is through pain. It's the only way you know that you are there. How would you describe yourself now? Well, this is going to surprise you. I would not give anything for my life now. Meaning, if you were to tell me when I was born, <clears throat> October 5th, 1969, in Devonshire, Bermuda, on a hurricane night, that I would have bipolar, that I would survive suicide twice, that I would be divorced, that I would go through bankruptcy, IRS debt, 
if you told me that I would go through all of those things, including a second uh, suicide, suicide uh, survival, uh, I would tell you, yep, I want to live. I want all of it. I have no regrets. I see myself as an advocate speaking for things that I know. I also know that a lot of people like me don't have the platform to speak about these issues. And I also know that, and I also want people to understand that even though you're an ordained minister, a Baptist minister who can get out there and preach it up and have people <laughs> falling out, <laughs> that that does not um, protect you from life. Life still is coming. Life still is going to, to hit you and harm you and all of that. But there is something particular about the black experience of mental illness that is not seen or reflected in a community that is 99.9% white, that has a very mm, modernistic understanding of health, which is that we move from a diagnosis to a cure via drugs, operations, therapies, and all these kinds of things that there are other and more vast and wider ways to do that that people have done for the 200,000 200, years people have been on this earth. We've been having babies. So now we get in this little period between, say, 1700 and now where we think that modern science has the answer to all of that. Me think not. But it's dominating now. And I think it's on, the, on us as people of color to say, hold on a second, I come from a culture where so that there can be other voices. Instead of just lettuce, we can have some other things in this salad. <laughs> and that's our reason for being, I believe. Pastor Sean Anthony Burchill, thank you for talking about your celebration, but also your own voice. And thank you for being here to listen to my voice and to what I have to say. I appreciate it. For additional resources related to this episode, please check the podcast show notes and visit NAMI Minnesota online at namimn.org. You've been listening to Wellness in Color on the Mental Health in Minnesota podcast produced by NAMI Minnesota.